Scripture this morning is Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It is always great to be with you guys here at uh, City Church Eastside for a lot of reasons. Uh, one is, just as Scott mentioned, just sort of the, the history relationally uh, with you guys and with him and with his family and all of those things. And secondly, I'm just a huge fan of your church and what God is doing in you and for you and through you here uh, on the east side of Atlanta and how critically important that is. And very, very thankful for that. Great to sing that song today, I Will Wait for You, because today in this series on Portrait of Jesus, uh, Scott has asked me to preach on the idea of the patience of Jesus. So that's a great song to think about. And as we think about the patience of Jesus, I'm going to start with something I read just a little over a week ago. Uh, There is a writer in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution whose articles, uh, whose column, usually comes out on Saturdays, if I remember correctly. I'm born in New York, raised in Miami, Lorraine Murray. Uh, described herself as an atheist and radical feminist for many years before, in her 40s, she returned to her roots of Catholicism. And she's written a number of books, one entitled Grace Notes, Embracing the Joy of Christ in a Broken World. And the title of her column, when it appears in the HAC, is in fact that, Grace Notes. And a week ago yesterday, she had an article that was humorously to me entitled, Lord, Give Me Patience and Hurry. (laughs) we've probably a lot of us felt like that, right? Lord, give me patience and hurry. And this is what she says. Have you ever stood by the microwave wondering why it's taking so long? Do you expect people to answer your text messages immediately? Well, welcome to the club of impatient people whose membership includes yours truly. She said, here's a typical example. I was driving downtown behind a car going 10 miles per hour. As I inched along, my patience grew, and I began gritting my teeth. Does this guy need GPS to find the gas pedal? Uh, I reminded myself, patience is a rare commodity in a, in a society in where quick and easy are sacred buzzwords. But I grew impatient with myself for being impatient. <laughs> I think she's right. Quick and easy can become buzzwords. And I am also in the membership of the Club of Impatient People. Just a little example out of, out of my life from many years ago. When I was in college, I was heading out on a date one evening, and my college roommate, who's a real practical joker, said, Well, Cargo, before you leave on your date, let me pray for you. I thought, well, it's not a big deal. But, you know, if you're a Christian, you never want to turn down somebody saying they'll pray for you. So, okay, so go ahead, go ahead, Tom, pray for me. And we bowed, and he began to pray, and he prayed, and he prayed. And he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed, and then I realized what was going on. He's just yanking my chain. And uh, so I cut him off, and, and he laughed, and he said, Cargo, when you are ready to go somewhere, you are ready to go. And my wife will tell you that's true today, too. 
in all kinds of little ways, I'm a very impatient person. And unfortunately, in some very big ways, I can be a very impatient person. Uh, no doubt. How about you? How about you? Well, uh, if you know emotional health or if you know the scriptures, then you know these things. That patience is a virtue. It is a virtue we don't often talk about or think about, but it is no doubt when you look at the scriptures, a virtue. And patience is a characteristic of emotional health. Let's stop and think about it. Have we all known someone who is so rudely and obviously impatient so often? that it is obvious this is a sign of emotional unhealth in this person. Just out of control about impatience, everything having to happen quickly and on their timetable. And they make life miserable for everybody else because of their impatience. It is a virtue. The Bible says things like this. A man's wisdom gives him patience. Patience is better than pride. That's out of the wisdom literature, both of those. And then in the New Testament, when the Apostle Paul describes... The results of being controlled by the Holy Spirit is called the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, etc. Number four on the list is patience. But I want to submit to you today this idea that not only is patience a hugely important virtue and sign of emotional health individually and all these little ways in which we interact with other people, I would submit to you that patience, in fact, what I want to call today missional patience, is vital for our corporate witness to the watching world. Let me say that again. Patience, that is something I'll call missional patience, is absolutely vital for our corporate communal witness to the watching world. This whole series is all Portrait of Jesus. Because if we're going to be followers of him that follow him correctly, we need to know who he is. And so today we consider this idea of looking at the patience of Jesus and seeing what implications does that have for us. Here's the idea of the message, and I hope we'll see it on the screen. In our fallenness, we too often try to advance the mission of God with the ways of this world. Instead, God calls us to a missional patience going to look at. Today we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the patience of Jesus. We're going to look at the patience of the early church. And we're going to look at our call to a missional patience. All right? So before we go any further, let's ask God to be with us again in this. Lord, we do thank you that uh, we're here to see your word. We're here to hear your word. We're here to be pointed to Jesus. And Lord, we ask you right now that you would forgive the sins of the one that brings these remarks, but that you would... Uh, Fill him and all of us with your spirit, uh, that you would lead us to see Jesus and see him clearly, and then from that, to see what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Let's consider first uh, the patience of Jesus, the patience of Jesus. Uh, we just had the scriptures read for us. I won't read it again, but to make a few comments, to dig a little deeper, to paint the portrait, to paint the picture of what's going on in this passage and here to see the patience of Jesus. When this event happens, it's been read for us. It happened pretty early in Jesus' ministry. It happened when he was up in the area called Galilee, a good bit north of Jerusalem and Judea, around the Sea of Galilee. And probably most of what happens in this chapter of his ministry happens in a city called Capernaum. In fact, a number of years ago, Scott and I and our wives had a chance to spend some time in Capernaum on a wonderful trip to Jerusalem. 
Uh, and even as I prepared this message, I thought about the vivid scenes of that. Well, Jesus was in this fishing village at the north end of Galilee of Capernaum. And much of his ministry began in that region. And already in Mark chapters 1 and 2 and 3, we see a number of things he has done. He burst upon the scene after his baptism, preaching. The kingdom of heaven has come. Good news. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of heaven is here. And he goes on to, to show the demonstrably with power that the kingdom was there. And this is the kind of things that starts happening in the first few chapters. He heals a man with an unclean spirit. He heals the mother-in-law of one of his followers named Simon. And after that, everybody starts bringing their sick and their ill to Jesus. In fact, it says the whole city was gathered at his door as he healed one person after another. He preaches again. He heals a leper. He calls several other apostles, two that are insiders of Judaism and one that is an outsider as a tax collector. Then in Capernaum, he heals a, a man who has a withered hand. And this is controversial because of this. He does it in the synagogue, and he does it on the Sabbath. Because he does it in the synagogue, and on the Sabbath, it's quite controversial, because Jesus is trying to make the point, in fact, he has just taught this, and now he illustrates it with this healing, that mankind is not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath is made for mankind. And as a result of that, the Jewish leaders wanted to get rid of him. Here it says in the text, right before this this verse, in verse 7 in our text, in verse 6 it said, That the leaders of Judaism, in fact, two different factions that usually were at each other's throats, found a common enemy. And the common enemy was Jesus. And they gathered together and they talked with each other about how they could get rid of Jesus. And so in this passage, Jesus sort of decides to retreat. He he decides to take a tact of detente, so to speak. So he leaves the synagogue, perhaps even leaves the city, and he goes to the edge of the Galilean Sea. But the crowd follows him. And not only does the crowd follow him, word has gotten out from all that Jesus has been doing. And here it lists where people have come from to try to get close to Jesus. And it says, for example, they come from Sidon. Well, that's 50 miles northwest of Capernaum. They come from Jerusalem. That's almost 80 miles due south of Capernaum. They have come from Adonia, which is 100 miles southwest of Capernaum. Word has gotten out. And people are crashing in around Jesus so much so that he is afraid really he is going to be crushed because people are saying, if you can just touch Jesus, you can be healed. And this is your ticket for healing. And they're all trying to do it. And so Jesus says to his disciples, please find a boat for me. Let me get in that boat so I've got a little bit of distance between me and the people. And he could speak to the people and, you know, his voice would be carried over the water, but mostly he would keep from being crushed. Well, another part of this story that really is a segue to the point is this. Jesus had been casting out demons. And when those demons would be cast out, they would cry out that Jesus was the Son of God. Now, they weren't doing that in praise to Jesus. Not at all. They were doing it as a way of saying, we'll tell you how he could one-up us. How could he cast us out? How could he expose us in what we're doing? We'll tell you how. He's the Son of God. He's the Son of God. And they were trying to, in a sense, uh, you know, get that word out there in their own self-defense. And Jesus tells the demons to shut up. (laughs) Don't declare that I am the Son of God. Now, what's going on in that? Well, I think there are two things. First of all, primarily in this passage, I think Jesus is saying, I don't want the good news to be proclaimed by demons, so stop talking. (laughs) 
The good news needs to be proclaimed by me and by those who follow me, so be quiet. But there's something else going on here, another reason that Jesus forbids them to speak. Now, why do I think there's another reason? Because of this. Earlier in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus healed the leper, he said, go show yourself to the priest so the priest can say, okay, your leprosy is gone. You can now worship. You can now go to the temple. You can now fellowship with other people and socialize. But he said, don't tell anybody besides the priest. Well, why would Jesus say that? Why? Also in Matthew 9, Jesus heals two men that are blind. And after he heals them, it said he sternly warned them not to tell anybody about it. Now, that's mysterious, isn't it? Why would Jesus tell people to be quiet? The whole point was to come and show the power of God's kingdom and preach the kingdom. Why did he want them to keep it quiet? In other words, to ask it this way, why not have the attitude, let's go big and let's do it now, right? Why not? I mean, you know, the the attitude that most of us would have is bigger is better and faster is better. So if you can be bigger and faster, that's the best, you know? Go big and go now. And if you can combine it all, after all, isn't that sort of the the American way, right? Go big or go home. And so what do we sometimes say in America? I want all, I want it all, and I want it when? Now. I want it all, and I want it now. So why did not Jesus have the attitude, I want it all, and I want it now? Well, there were two things that were vitally important for Jesus' ministry. And he knew if he had all of this blow up big right away, it was going to short-circuit these other two things. And they are these. First of all, there was his preaching and teaching ministry. It was the message behind the miracles. And if everybody just kept talking about the miracles and the miracles, and he got, people weren't hearing the message. They just wanted the miracles. Jesus had to get teaching and preaching. He knew that that would take time. It would take time. Secondly, Jesus knew that he also needed to do this. He needed to prepare these 12 followers, and even beyond that, another 70, that when he died and when he was raised from the dead and when he ascended to heaven, there would be people that would take his mission on. And the preparation of those leaders for the Christian church would take time. And so, sure, Jesus could have blown it up, go big right now, but that would have short-circuited two things. It would have it would have meant this, that people were just following him, not for the truth, but just for the miracles. And secondly, he would have failed to have developed the leaders that he needed to develop. So this, my friends, all of these cases I've talked about are the examples of the unbelievable patience of Jesus. I would submit to you that the patience we see in Jesus right here is another example of the submission of Jesus to his father that Scott preached about just a few weeks ago. Jesus was out in the wilderness. And Jesus was able to say no to the temptations of what? Approval and appetite and ambition. He followed the will of his Father. And right here, the very same thing is happening. He is following the will of his Father. And I would suggest to you that Jesus is being led by the Spirit to do the Father's will and the Father's time. It's the patience of Jesus. Now, how does that apply to us? Well, Before we see how it applies to us, sort of as a segue, after seeing the patience of Jesus, uh, let's talk about the patience of the early church, the patience of the early church. In preparation for this message, Scott uh, thankfully asked me to read a terrific book. It's a book called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, The Improbable Rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire by a guy named Alan Kreider. And Alan Kreider quotes from one 
what we call early church father. The, the leaders of the early church in the first centuries were called the early church fathers. And interestingly enough, a number of them wrote whole treatises about the virtue of patience. And they said absolutely amazing things about this. For example, the theologian Origen, who taught and preached in the 3rd century in Alexandria, and then in Caesarea in, Pal- in, in, Palestine, in Palestine, I mean, he made these observations about patience. Here it is. When people seek to follow Christ, according to Origen, God forms them into people who embody this patience. I'm not sure if we have this on the screen. Maybe not. If, if it's not on the screen, you'll have to listen real hard. <laughs> Hopefully, if we got it on the screen, you can see it and hear it both. We're working on it. We'll dive into it, okay? Anyway, to summarize what Origen wrote, this is according to Kreider. When people would seek to follow Jesus, according to Origen, God would form them into people who embody this patience. Christ's followers are not in a hurry. They listen carefully when the word is read and preached. And they patiently call to account strained Christians who attend worship services irregularly. Patient believers trust God. When they are subjected to penitential discipline, they patiently bear the judgment made upon them, whether they have been rightly or wrongly deposed. Their reflexes are nonviolent. When others treat them violently, they never exact an eye for an eye, but respond in silence and patience and even offer words of blessing. That was testimony of what Origen said. There was another church father by the name of Tertullian. He ministered in North Africa in the late 2nd and early 3rd centuries. And this is what he said, a translated quote about patience. He said this, In poverty, patience supplies consolation. Let me wait on that one as well, okay? In poverty, patience supplies consolation. Upon wealth, it imposes moderation. The sick it doesn't destroy, nor does it for a man in health prolong his life. For the man of faith, it's a source of delight. It attracts the heathen, recommends the slave to his master, the master to God. It adorns a woman, perfects a man. It is loved in a child, praised in a youth, esteemed in the aged. In both men and women at every age of life, it is exceedingly attractive. The other thing I would pass on from an early church father, this one's not uh, on the screen, so short, but it's powerful. Justin Martyr, another leader of the early church, basically said this. It was the strange patience of Christians that led pagans to believe, to become believers. Let me say that again. It was the strange patience of Christians that led pagans to become believers. That's an amazing thing to say, that they were patient. Uh, Alan Kreider sort of summarizes all that he found from the early church about patience in eight statements. And uh, uh, these will be very quick, but they're very powerful. Each of these could be a whole sermon in and of themselves. You'll see them on the screen, I hope. Let me just read through them real quickly. The first is this. Patience is rooted in God's character. God is patient. He is working inexorably across the centuries to accomplish his mission. And in the fullness of time, he disclosed himself in Jesus Christ. Number two. The heart of patience is revealed in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Jesus' life and his teachings demonstrate what patience means. And they beckon those who follow him to to also have a patient lifestyle that participates in God's mission. Thirdly, patience is not in human control. 
People who live a patient lifestyle trust God and do not try to manipulate outcomes. They therefore live incautiously and riskily by putting things in God's control. Patience, number four, is not in a hurry. Patient Christians live at the pace given by God, accepting incompleteness and waiting. I hate to wait. Number five, patience is unconventional. It reconfigures behavior according to Jesus' teachings in many areas, especially wealth, sex, and power. Think about that. The patience of people following God reconfigures all those things. I don't have to have it all, and I don't have to have it now. Number six, impatience is not violent. It accepts entry without retaliating in kind because violence is not God's calling to them and cannot bring fundamental change. Patience gives religious freedom. It does not compel religious beliefs and observances. And lastly, patience is hopeful and entrusts the future confidently to God. You know, one of the things that is characteristic right now of too many followers of Jesus is this. They are looking at circumstances and their confidence in the future is crumbling. Why is that? It's because there's an impatience to our faith, a living by sight and not by faith, not understanding the big movements of God's Spirit, and therefore no confidence in what God is doing now and what He is doing in the future. All of this is really the the experience of the early church that comes from what the Scriptures teach over and over. In preparation for this, I did a word study of patience. I looked up every passage about patient and patience in the Scriptures. And over and over again, the New Testament talks about patient endurance, patience and suffering. For example, in in Romans it says, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction. In Ephesians, Paul says, be patient, bearing with one another. And the writer of Hebrews said this, we should be imitators of those who through faith and patient endurance inherit God's promises. And the book of Hebrews tells about one person after another who followed God in faith. And they followed him for years and years and years and years before they saw what God had promised. And maybe even what they, what they had been promised was belonging to the next generation. But what God did through them was hugely vital and important. People of patience. And my friends, our culture has shaped us to be anything but people of patience, right? Quick and easy. The patience of Jesus, the patience of the early church. And that leads us to then consider this. Our call to missional patience. What does this really mean? You think, Bob, you've used the term missional patience. What in the world does that mean? Uh, Let me give you these five things that I think it means. It means, first of all, patient suffering. It means, secondly, patient service. Thirdly, it means patient love. Fourthly, patient prayer. And fifthly, patient witness. Patient witness. These five things, if we could put them back up, I want you to, to look at them and stare at them for a moment. This is what God calls us toward if we're to have a corporate witness that advances the kingdom of God. We don't like suffering, but there's to be patient suffering. There's to be patient service, patiently helping other people and meeting their needs. Patient love. You remember 1 Corinthians 13, it describes Christian love. And what is the first characteristic of agape Christian love? Love is what? Love is patient and it is kind. There is patient prayer and there is also patient verbal 
witness. Let me admit to you that as a product of the 20th and 21st century Western culture, I am anything but patient. I will have to admit to you, I hate all five of these ideas. (laughs) Naturally and personally, I hate all those things. Not only am I impatient in suffering, I don't want to suffer at all. Secondly, I like proclamation that is powerful, and I don't really like doing deeds of humble service in order to gain a hearing or just to show the reality of God's love. I'd rather talk than serve any day. Number three, I want to aggressively persuade rather than patiently love. There is something about love that is absolutely inextricably combined with patience. And it is my show of impatience that often shows the shallowness of my love. Fourthly, I'm much too busy doing things, planning things, accomplishing things, than to be a man of patient, persistent prayer. I pray in a hurry and that I take a long time to work. Too often God is calling us to do the opposite, to be patient in our prayers and careful in our work rather than jumping out the door to go do something. And in my verbal witness, I will have to admit to you, I prefer quick and easy conversions. The patience that takes a long time for conversion is a hard thing. Some of us at our church at Perimeter were talking recently about our ministry to the changing community in the northeast suburbs. Uh, I don't know how many thousands and thousands and thousands of people were moving into our part of metro Atlanta from South Asia and East Asia as well. And we are very thankful for that gospel opportunity. These people are adding so much to the kingdom of God in our midst as these converts come into our church and we get to know them and meet them. But we were talking about the challenge of reaching so many more people who have known Hinduism or, or Islam, but they haven't known the basics of Christianity. What does this mean for our mission field? And as we discuss this, One of our leaders uh, mentioned a partner that we've had in India for many, many, many years. And and he has said, our brother over there in India has told us that on average in in his ministry in India, it takes six years in the life of a person to see a convert. Six years of loving them. Six years of serving them. Six years of talking about Christ with them. Six years of caring about them. And that's the average for a conversion. That is called missional patience. That is called missional patience. My friends, you may be thinking, well, we don't live in India. That's true. We don't live in India. But we do live on a mission field that now requires missional patience. The Atlanta, Georgia of 2021 is not the Atlanta, Georgia of 1945 or 1965 or 1985 or even 1995 or 2005. We live on a mission field that requires missional patience where the deeds of the gospel that come from all of us, the patient loving and serving of people that are only little by little beginning to understand Christianity, not in big steps, but in little steps, starting to put it together. Those things are the things that God is calling us to. The last question we would have is this. If that is what God calls us to, how in the world do we develop missional patience? And I would give us these three things to do. And these are not steps to take. It's not take step one, step two, step three. This is a new rhythm of life. And the first part of that rhythm of life is repentance of our impatience. (laughs) O 
over and over again, repenting of our impatience. You know, gospel change always starts with gospel repentance. And what is gospel repentance? It's a remorseful turning away from our sin and our own strategies and a joyful turning to Christ for forgiveness and transformation. So to become people with missional patience, we repent of our impatience. We turn away from those things and joyfully turn to Christ. And we say, Lord, I will put aside coercive tactics and a demanding spirit for results and a preference for microwave conversions and life change. Lord, as I minister in the lives of other people, as I seek to follow you, I will be patient in what you're doing in my life. If it takes a long time to see someone converted, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to pray. I'm going to keep working. So we repent of our impatience. Secondly, we humbly embrace the call to missional patience. We humbly embrace it. And it's saying things like this, in, in, in honesty, Lord, lead me to readily embrace by faith patient suffering and persecution. May I embrace the patient serving of other people and never give up serving them and loving them, even if they don't respond. May I embrace the love that is patient and not demanding, not requiring love in return. May I embrace persistence in prayer and patience in prayer that I would always pray and never give up. And may I embrace a patience in my verbal witness. As many conversations as it might take, that I'll continue on and on to love and to share the good deeds. I'm now meeting with a friend who is investigating Christianity. He and I met five or six times about six or seven years ago. And at that time he said, thanks, but no thanks. But God has done some things in his heart to make him more open. And we're going to meet every Tuesday night for months as we work through one book after another and one part of the gospel after another. And this time, I don't think we're going to give up very easily. The lights are starting to come on, but it takes missional patience. So we repent of our impatience. Secondly, we embrace this call to missional patience. And third is this, we live in union with our patient Savior. You know, it's our union with Christ by which we're forgiven of our sins. And it's through our union with Christ and by faith in Him that we're, we're forgiven of all of our impatience. And it's by our union with Christ that His spirit of incredible patience can conquer my impatient heart. And He can do that for you as well. Living in union with Christ makes us Christ-like. And it can give us a patience that is absolutely from Him and not from ourselves. I am an impatient man. If God is going to give me missional patience, it's going to be by the work of the Spirit. I'll close with this. You know, what we do always flows from what we believe. Okay? What we do always flows from what we believe. And in order to have missional patience, I will encourage you to believe something that you declare, if I remember correctly. You declare this every week when you take communion, if I remember correctly. And that is to believe this, that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus Christ. Secondly, that the kingdom of God is coming now through the work of the Spirit here and around the world. And someday, thirdly, the kingdom of God will come when Jesus returns with power and with glory. It has come. It is coming. It will come. And I would submit to you that if you really believe that, if you have confidence in that truth, then you will be empowered to embrace this missional patience. Oh, Lord, may you give us this missional patience because your kingdom is real. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you now. We ask you now. Lord, make us patient people. Give us this missional patience that comes from you because, indeed, your kingdom has come through Jesus. 
Oh, how Israel yearned for centuries that the Messiah would come. And finally he came. We thank you, Lord, that your spirit is working. We think about church history and the spread of the gospel around the world. And we think about what will happen if you delay, Lord Jesus, for another few hundred years. What could it mean to the whole world? We look at what you're doing in the southern hemisphere of this world. We look at what you're doing now among people who have come here to North America from all over the world. And we get excited thinking about what you are doing. But, oh, Lord, give us this missional patience if indeed there is a chapter coming to us that means greater opposition and greater persecution and tougher conversions. Oh, Lord, give us that missional patience that we will be like our Savior. And we thank you that there is no reason for us to worry, no reason to be concerned. Your kingdom is coming, and that someday it will come with all power. We praise it, praise you and pray all this in the name of Jesus our Savior. Amen. We now have the opportunity to to confess together. And my gosh, uh, a sermon as practical as one on patience. There's a lot that we could talk about with Jesus right now. You know, it could be something pretty small. I mean, I, we're coming back from our elder.